This is the New Song Church podcast. You're listening to a service from our church in Oklahoma City. Wherever you're at today, we hope this helps you to better know God and to practice the way of Jesus. Now here's the message. Look at y'all brave in the snow and the cold, cold temps. Hey, thanks for being here. I know you could have stayed in bed under the warm covers today, but I really appreciate you coming out. Um, It's been a wild weekend, right? Earthquakes? What in the world? And then yesterday it was like glittering. It wasn't snowing, but it was glittering. And I was like, Lord, it's the Shekinah glory. It's coming down. (laughs) It's it's a it's it's um, leftover from blocks. Was any blocks was just so so good. Um, if you missed blocks conference, go back and watch every message, every service, all the way through. Worship was fantastic. The word was so good, and I truly believe it was a tipping point for our church. Um, so make sure that you check out those messages. And then uh, tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day, and uh, Martin Luther King would have been turning ninety five years old this year. What a legacy! Um, that he left, um, civil rights movement, amazing, amazing legacy. He has this quote saying, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. This man, you know, believed in the power of prayer. I was looking at pictures of him um, this morning, uh, knelt down in prayer before big things like the March on Washington and things like that. So we know that prayer was an an integral part of his life. And I wanna invite you to honor his legacy weather permitting, and come out and pray with us tomorrow. Here at noon, we're having a midday prayer, and uh, I just think it would be a great way for us to honor uh, his legacy to come and join together in unity and to pray and to press in over our city and our country. And so if you can make it be here, I was really hoping we could have 100 people here tomorrow for prayer. I don't know what's going on with the weather, but we'll see if we have it. If we do, then then get here. Um, we've had 60 people at prayer, 70 people before, 80 people. We've never had 100 people at prayer before. And I just really want to see this room filled with 100 people at some point during the 21 days of prayer and fasting. So uh, check out those times there on our uh, app, website, etc. All right, we are in a series called Fill the Earth, um, and I'm continuing that series. Anybody remember the year 2004? You were live in 2004? Okay, remember when um, all of the shows back then had to start with previously on? Because we had to wait seven whole days before the next episode of our favorite show to drop. It's unfathomable to us now, but we used to have to wait seven days. And so all the shows would start with like, previously on Lost or previously on 24. Um, And we're really thankful for those refreshers because without a previously on Lost, you were going to be lost. Um, So this series kind of lends itself to previously on. So let let me just start today with a previously on Fill the Earth. You guys good? All right. Previously on Fill the Earth, Pastor Josh talked about the Garden of Eden and how we look at Eden, when we look at Eden through God's ultimate mission, the lens of his ultimate mission. Someone say ultimate mission. When we look at Eden through the lens of God's ultimate mission, we see several things. Number one, we see that Eden was the very first temple, the very first temple. The biblical writers wanted us to see Eden as a sanctuary as a place where God's presence dwelled. Uh, The tabernacle of Moses, um, the tent of David, the temple that Solomon would eventually build, all of these things where God's people would later worship, they all had callbacks to the Garden of Eden, things in them that were to call the people back to Eden to remind the people of God's original intent and mission for his 
creation. Uh, he showed us that Eden was set up with three distinct areas, much like the temple was set up with three distinct areas. There was the outside world um, in the garden, and then there was the outer courts in the temple. There's the garden, which parallels to the holy place, and then at the top of Eden, Eden was on a mountain. So at the very top of Eden was the holy of holies. It's parallel to the holy of holies, the place where God's presence was most intense. This is the place where the tree of life would have been, where Adam and Eve had been invited to come and ingest of the life of God. This tree provided a meal that would transform all who would eat of it. Sound familiar? God said, come and eat. Eat all of the trees, including this one. Just don't eat of the knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So both Eden and the temple are characterized by God's presence. And then number two, we see that Adam and Eve were the first priests in this temple that was Eden. Adam and Eve were given a priestly assignment. They were told to work and keep the garden the same language that we see given to the uh, priest in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And then number three, we see that God created humanity, male and female, in his image. Someone say image. Humans were designed to be a representation of God. You look at that word, look at it, break it down, represent. They were to represent God. So much so that anybody who looked at Adam and Eve should have been able to see and experience and interact with the nature of God. Uh, Pastor Josh talked about how ancient temples always had a man-made idol in them. This is interesting. They had a carved figure. They had some type of molded statue in them representing the image of the God, whoever the, the, the people were worshiping at that temple. And when people looked at that man-made idol, they were hoping to see and to inter, uh, interact and to experience the God that they came to worship. But the, the temple of Eden did not have a man-made idol in it representing God. Eden had two God-made living images representing him. So instead of a carved lifeless idol in Eden, God placed an image in Eden in Adam and Eve, and these image bearers were commissioned by God. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which is the text for this series. You can follow along with me on the screens or turn there in your Bible. Genesis 1, 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Somebody say, fill the earth, fill the earth. and subdue it and have dominion. Remember that, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, as we read through the creation narrative, um, if you're following along with us in the Being Transformed journals, you've been reading the creation narrative, you, you'll see a pattern. That first God forms something and then God fills what he formed. He formed the heavens and then he filled the heavens with the sun and the moon and the stars, right? He filled the earth or he formed the earth and then he filled it with trees and vegetation and with animals. He formed the sea and then he filled the sea with fish and with sea monsters. And then he formed us, he formed mankind and then he filled us 
with his spirit. He filled us with the breath of God. He filled us with a mind to think, a will to choose, emotions to fill, and he filled us with a, a nature, a nature so that we could know him and to be known by him. He forms and then he fills. And Adam and Eve were commissioned to carry on this work of forming or of filling what he had formed. Formed through, they were, they were called to do this through the expansion of Eden, to go on and, and fill what I formed through the expansion of Eden, to fill the earth with my presence, with the image of me. They were called to expand the boundaries of the garden so that the world outside of the garden could be God's dwelling place. The whole earth, a resting place for God's glory and for his planet. He's like, I formed the whole planet, not just this little place right here, but I formed it all, but I want you to now go and fill it. Fill it with the image of God, fill it with the glory of God, fill it with my presence and subdue it. We also learned that God's mission for us is the same mission that he gave to Adam and Eve. We are called now to expand the borders of his kingdom and to fill the earth with his glory. Now, I love this series so much because I really feel like it's a deep dive into helping us understand our mission in a greater way than maybe we've ever understood it before. At New Song, we have four main pursuits, and these uh, four pursuits, they dictate all that we're doing here in Edmond. We are pursuing the presence of God. We're pursuing transformational discipleship, kingdom community, and sacrificial mission. And I think that everybody knows in the room, or everybody should know in the room, that to successfully pursue any type of mission, you need to understand what the objective of said mission is. Like We need to know what our commander's intent is. If we really want to live into sacrificial mission, it can't just be words that we have printed on a website or thrown up on a t-shirt. It can't just be something that you think that me and Pastor Josh or Pastor Tondra and Pastor Ashley want you to do. You need to understand that this is a, a God mission. It's a God mission to live on sacrificial mission. Um, the U.S. Army has realized that battle plans within about 10 minutes of a battle are pretty much useless because um, the enemy uh, doesn't always do what you plan on the enemy doing. And so commanders begin to understand, okay, more than a battle plan, they need to go into this mission knowing my intent. They need to know my intent. What's the objective? What's the overall objective intent of this mission? More than a battle plan. Pastor Josh told me yesterday, he's like, I got a quote for you to, to use in your message tomorrow. And I was like, okay, what is it? And he was like, it's from Mike Tyson. I was like, okay. Um, he was like, I, I, it's everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. How many, like, sometimes things, things don't go according to plan. But if you know your commander's intent, if you know what the mission is, you don't have to freeze up. You don't have to abort the mission. But you can adjust accordingly with the intent of your commander in mind. G.K. Beale says, like soldiers on the field, Christians must know their commander's intent in order to fulfill our commander's intent in the changing and challenging situations of our lives. How many, how many of you would say life doesn't always go according to plan, but just because life doesn't go according to your plan doesn't mean that you have to abort the mission that God has for your life. We adjust. We adjust keeping the end objective in mind. He says, we must take time to form a compelling biblical picture of it, which is what this series is all about. We are trying to form a compelling biblical picture of our commander's intent. And when it comes to God's intent for mission, a lot of people want to start in Matthew 18 uh, or Matthew 28 verse 18 with the great commission, go into all the world. 
making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do all that I have commanded you to do. And this is a a great uh, part of mission, but it's not where mission starts. Mission begins in Genesis 1. His heartbeat, God's heartbeat for mission is found in Genesis 1 and can be traced throughout the entire Bible all the way to Revelation 22. God's intent is communicated in the creation narrative. It's reiterated throughout the entire Bible. And we see what mission accomplished looks like in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So we see at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, fill the earth with God's image and his presence and subdue it. That's the mission. And then mission accomplished, we see in Revelation 21, where it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Mission accomplished. Our commander's intent God's intent is that the whole earth be filled with his presence. On Monday, this last Monday at noon, when we gathered for prayer, Pastor Jackson was leaving, and he had people get up as they felt led and pray into these areas where they felt like they were supposed to fill the earth with his presence, whether it's to fill their school, their workplace, um, whatever they felt like, this is the place that God's calling me to be a sanctuary, to be a place where, where, God, where heaven meets with earth, a place for me to um, have his presence come and invade and rest in this place. And it was really beautiful listening to people pray into their call to expand Eden, to fill the earth. Judy, a woman who's in the marketplace, she prayed that God would use her in business meetings, that he would use her in those boardrooms with executives, with employees, as she trains staff, that wherever she goes, and that she would be a, a place where earth meets, or where heaven meets with earth. She would be a place that she could, um, to fill the rooms with God's presence, the rooms that she finds herself in. Steve and Brady, two men who minister in prisons and in halfway houses, they prayed that God would continue to open up doors for them so that they could fill the prisons with God's presence. Fill the earth. They want to fill the prisons, the darkest places with God's presence. They want to bring hope to these places um, where men are bound up by addiction. Brisbane, a little sweet tween, she prayed that she would shine God's light to her volleyball team whether she's on the bench, whether she's praying, whether she's at practice, that she would fill the earth with God's presence while she plays volleyball. Serena, a woman who's in nursing school, she prayed for opportunities to be a sanctuary, to be a vessel, to fill the classrooms that she finds herself in with the presence of God. Emily, a mom of six, that she she prayed that as she homeschools those six children, that her classroom at home would be filled with rivers of living water, that her home would be God's dwelling place, that God would rest, his spirit would rest on her home, that her children would see Christ in her, that she would be being transformed into his image and her children would see that. She also prayed over our four and five-year-old's classroom that she helps lead at church. If you have four and five-year-olds, then know that Miss Emily is praying for them. She is praying that God's presence will fill that classroom classroom, so much so that as these little ones grow up, that they don't have problems trusting in the Lord because they have an experiential knowledge of his presence because Miss Emily's been back there filling that classroom with the presence of God. And then Pastor Jackson prayed that as he goes to the skate parks, because he skateboards, because he's the coolest student's pastor ever, um, he prayed that he would step into that priestly role to represent God to the skateboarders who are sitting in darkness. Susanna Wesley, she says, I am content to fill a little space 
if God be glorified. I'm content to fill a little space if God be glorified. What spaces, big or little, has God called you, church, to fill with his glory? Big or little, what spaces has he called you to fill for his glory? The mission is not to just fill this church. It is not to just fill those seats, but it is much bigger than that. It is to fill the earth with God's presence, to expand the dwelling place of our God. And that's exactly what we were praying into on Monday. The mission is clear to fill the earth with God's presence. And the mission is not just for those who are called to the mission field, but this is for every single one of us. It's for the teachers, it's for the parents, it's for the IT guys, it's for the sales reps, it's for the doctors, it's for the nurses, it's for the big brothers, it's for the moms, it's for the dads, it's for all of God's people. We're called to be missionaries. Adam and Eve were commissioned to be the first missionaries. We don't often think of them that way, but they were called to be the first missionaries. They were the first ones commanded to expand the boundaries of the garden and to fill the earth. But Adam and Eve, we know that they failed in their commission. They disobeyed God. They ate of the tree that they were not supposed to eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They did what was right in their own eyes. They took and they ate of this counterfeit tree, the tree that they thought could offer them something that God could not offer them. They take and they eat of that counterfeit tree, which is so sad. It's so sad because we know that they've been given full access to the tree of life. They could come and eat any time, but they choose to eat from the false tree. And as a result of their sin, they're driven out of the garden. Sin closed off the way to the holy of holies. They could not get to that place where God's presence was most intense. It closes off the way to the immediate access of God's presence, closes off the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve, they forfeited their priestly role. And Genesis 3.24 says that two cherubim, along with a flaming sword, take over the responsibility of guarding the holy of holies, the place where God's presence was most intense. And when I say cherubim, I'm not talking about like little cute chubby babies with wings. I'm talking about these intense hybrid creatures with wings. They're jacked, apparently, at least in this <laughs> artist. Uh, depiction of them, but they had like the different faces of all of the animals that the Lord had created. This is an intense, the flaming sword guarding the entrance back to the garden. This is detrimental to humanity's call to fill the earth with God's image because outside of the garden, humans no longer have immediate access to be with God and to behold God in Eden in the holy of holies, the most holy place, that nothing in between us, intimate relationship, face-to-face -face with the Lord, that's damaged. And Adam and Eve, if they can't behold him, then we know they can't become like him, and that's a problem because if they can't become like him, they can't properly represent him. So east of Eden, we see that chaos and destruction and devastation fill the earth instead of God's presence, instead of God's image. And as we read through Genesis over the next couple of months in our Being Transformed journals, and as you read through the entire story of Scripture in the Old Testament, you'll read about the tragic results of humanity's fall. And as you read, you start to wonder and you start to become desperate. Who will open the way back up to God's presence? Or are we forever condemned to live our lives east of Eden? God had a plan. 
He had a plan from before the foundations of the earth. He would commission a man and then a family and then a tribe and then a people and eventually a nation. And he would be their God and they would be his people. And in his goodness and in his mercy and his graciousness, he gives them a plan. He gives them blueprints for how they can worship him and how they can behold him and how they can have access to his presence. They give, he gives them instructions in his grace. The commandments are great gift here. Let me show you how to live your life, how redeemed people live their lives. And you can show the rest of the world how redeemed people live their lives. But sin and idol worship continually separate God's people from his presence. Enter Jesus, the dwelling place of God, the one that scripture says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, the fullness of God. Jesus is the way back to Eden. He is the way back to communion with God. He is the way back to the nothing in between intimate relationship that God wanted to have with his children. He is the way back to God's presence. He is the one who came to announce that God's eternal life is now available through me. I am the tree of life. Remember, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches and you can remain in me. You can remain in me. If you don't, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you remain in me, in me, you can live. In me, you can move. In me, you can have your being. Apart from me, you will be paralyzed. Apart from me, you will be dead. Apart from me, you will not have a purpose. But in me, remain in me. I've opened up a seat at the table for you to come and to eat, to eat of the tree of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. He said eternal life is available through me. Yes. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, someone say confidence, confidence. to enter the holy places, the holy of holies by the blood of of Jesus, the beautiful blood of Jesus. Come and behold the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. It says, since we have confidence to go boldly into the holy of holies, into his presence, we have now immediate access to God's presence because of the blood of Jesus. He made a way through his flesh. We don't have to tiptoe. We don't have to be worried about those cherubim or the flaming sword. We can come boldly because of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the only confidence that I need. It is my confidence to come boldly and be in his presence. Now we can behold him. Now we can remain in him and we can reflect God's glory to the ends of the earth. We are called to live on sacrificial mission and mission. Our mission is the same as Adam and Eve's. It's to fill the earth with God's presence. So for the rest of our time together, I want to talk about what fuels that mission. What fuels our mission? And it's not coffee although I've had four shots today, and I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. It's not coffee. Worship fuels mission. Worship fuels mission. John Piper, he says it like this. Worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Okay, think about that. When all the tribes and nations and tongues are worshiping the Lord, 
Missions doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't need to exist, right? Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go. Yes, that's why we go to Porto Penasco. And that, yes, that's why we go to Cincinnati. And that's why we go to Tulsa. And that's why we go out and serve our cities on Saturdays. But it's also why we go into our workplaces and into our schools and into our gyms and into our classrooms because we've tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus. We've been in his presence. We've beheld, we've seen his beauty. We've become fascinated and captivated and we want all the families of the earth included in this. Do we not? We want all the earth to experience the goodness of God. Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. And you can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. Worship fuels our mission to fill the earth with God's presence because worshipers bear and reflect the image of the one that we worship. We bear and reflect the image of God. We become what we behold. We've been talking about that a lot. We become what we behold. We look like what we look at. We look like what we look at. What are you looking at? We've been talking a lot about being made in the image of God and how it's our destiny to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Why do we talk so much about being transformed into the image of Jesus? Because it's mission critical, church. It's mission critical. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined that they would be transformed into the image of his son. The word image there in the Greek is this word right here. Any idea what that translates into in English? Any guesses? Icon. Yes, icon. So this word here, uh, predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, it's the icon of his son. Now, interestingly, icon is what somebody decided to name the little images on our desktop or on our laptop that you have to like click on to usher in the megabytes of whatever computer program that that little icon represents. You guys know what I'm talking about? The icons on your desktop, like you click on your Spotify icon and boom, like all the streaming music that you could ever want is at your fingertips. You click on your Safari icon and the World Wide Web is right there. It opens you up. Um, now, navigating your way around a computer was not always as easy as it is today. Some of you may be old enough to remember when we use text-based um, text-based interfering, or sorry, interfacing, text-based interfacing. And this is what it looked like when you opened up your computer. That's crazy. Like, what even is that? It looked like that. Text-based interfacing. There were no cute icons, right? There wasn't any cute icons. It was just crazy-looking text. But in the 70s, something called graphical user interfacing came on the scene or GUI. Some tech heads are like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, I really had to study this this week. Um, I, I also read that you could pronounce it GUI, which is fun. GUI, GUI. Someone say GUI. GUI. Okay, GUI allows users to interact with their devices. We all interact with devices every single day. It allows us to interact with our devices via visual indicators and graphic 
icons. Visual indicators, graphic icons, instead of this super hard, crazy to understand text-based interface. Now when we open our computers, it looks like this. And we know where we're going, what we need to click on to get to where we need to go. It's a graphic interface. Um, we all use GUI every day. We use GUI every day. We use icons every day. Think about your iPhone. You click on your Spotify app and it, boom, it takes you to music. You click on the Bible app, that icon, the Bible icon, the maps icon, the calculator icon, the new song icon. We touch it and the icon ushers in the program. I don't know about you, but if you took away all the icons from my computer and we went back to text-based interface, I would be so lost. I would have no idea how to get where I needed to go. I don't know how to get to my mail without that little envelope icon. I would be calling and driving our IT guys crazy. <laughs> icons are images. They're images that depict the type of items that they represent. And when you click on them, all the behind the scenes coding and programming and all the other techie stuff, it opens up the software or it links you to whatever the image represents. We were made in the image of God. We are called to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Image equals icon. G.K. Beale says, metaphorically, we are meant to be a small picture file in the terabytes of God's glory in creation. God has created us as icons of his powerful presence. Icons don't point to themselves. It's not about me and it's not about you. Icons don't point to themselves, but icons usher in a far greater reality. Similarly, we represent God so that our presence ushers in the presence of the almighty God wherever we go. Think about this. God did not use a text-based interface operating system. In his infinite wisdom, he didn't choose a text-based interface operating system. He chose an image-based yeah. interface. He was way ahead of Steve Jobs, way ahead of Apple. This was their first computer, the Lisa. This was the one that had the first graphically uh, user interface. Down there, it's, I don't know if you can see it, but it's the little friendly icons, so we know how to find our trash and our preferences in our hard drive. He was way ahead of Steve Jobs. He chose icons, he chose images, he chose people yeah. to represent him. Think about Jesus. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus was the image of God. God wanted the world to be able to interact with him through visual indicators. That's just the way he created the world. Adam and Eve would be the first icons in God's graphical user interface known as the world, but sin distorted the image. Sin messed up the file, corrupted the file, but Jesus came and he gave us a new perfect image, the image of God. And he made a way for us to have a brand new spirit that, check this out, Colossians 3 tells us that brand new spirit that he has given to us is being renewed after the image of its creator. That's insane. Read Colossians 3. It will blow your mind. Okay, we can only carry out our part in the mission to fill the earth with God's presence if we recognize our identity as icons in his graphically interfaced amazing world. Did you know you were an icon? Now you know. But it's hard to be a part of his interface if we are not seeking his face. It's hard to be a part of the interface if we're not seeking his face, right? Worship fuels mission. Why? Because in worship we are seeking God's face. And scripture tells us that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, what's the reward? If we seek him, scripture says, we find him. So the reward for those who diligently seek his face is his face. 
It's more of his face. It's more of him. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Seek me and you will find me. Now, what does it mean to seek God's face? Am I talking about like his eyes, his nose, his beard, his literal face? No. When I speak of uh, seeking the face of God, I'm talking about what the Old Testament refers to as God's holy and his favorable presence. The presence of God. To seek God's face is to seek his presence, which is why we are pursuing the presence of God. God, if you're not here, if your presence is here, not here, we don't want to go. Like Moses, I don't want to go if you don't go with us, your presence. Psalm 105.4 says, look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always, not sometimes, not on Sundays, not at blocks, not for 21 days, but to seek his face always. Always. And then Psalm 105.4, same verse, different translation. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Seek his face always. Seek his presence continually. As we seek God's face and as we seek his presence continually, you know what happens continually? We find him continually. We behold him continually. And we'll gain more and more of the experiential knowledge that is found in Christ Jesus. The knowledge of the glory of God that's in Jesus we find as we seek him. And the more experiential knowledge of God that we get, the more we want. Worship begets worship. When we seek God, when we seek his face, we draw near to him and he draws near to us. And as he's getting closer and closer to us, do you know what happens? We get a bigger view of God. He doesn't get bigger. He never changes. But as we get closer to him, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger and holier and amazing and more beautiful. We get a bigger view of God. And how many know you need a big view of God if you want to fill this big earth with his presence? And with his image, worshiping God transforms us increasingly to reflect and represent God's presence as his image and icons in this world. Do you remember when Moses went to, to up to the mountain and he was with God? He had been in the presence of God. He came down from the mountain and his face was shining. He was reflecting the glory of the one that he had been with. But the glow of that glory, it began to fade over time. In between his visits with God, he had DGS. He had diminishing glory syndrome. His, he, he would veil his face so that the Israelites couldn't see the faded glory. But Jesus, but Jesus, Jesus made a way for us to confidently enter into the Holy of Holies. And now we have immediate access to God and we can behold him whenever and wherever we want to. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we now... We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Seeking God's face, being in his presence. This is what charges us up. This is what fuels us for our mission. Any of you ever get one of those little like glow in the dark toys, um, like from the Chuck E. Cheese prize counter or Crystal's Pizza prize counter? Any Casa Bonita? Anybody ever been to Casa Bonita? Yep. You ever get one of those little glow-in-the-dark toys, like a lizard or something, and you're so pumped? You go home. As soon as you get home, you shut the closet door. You turn off the light. You open up your little hand, and nothing. Yeah. That thing is not glowing. And I, I feel like every kid has to learn this lesson the hard way, that if you want that sucker to grow, 
or to glow, you got to put it under a lamp for like 24 hours. It's got to be charged up by the light. And then you can go into the dark place and, and you'll see that the lizard actually does what it was created to do. We're kind of like that little lizard. We're called to shine in dark places, but we're not going to shine without spending any time with the Lord. We're not going to shine if we don't spend any time charging under the light of God's glory, the light of God's face. You know the prayer that he had the priest pray? He had a written prayer. He wanted the priest to pray every time they left the temple. It was, may the Lord bless you and keep you, and may he make his face shine on you. He wanted that declared over his people every day. We got to spend time charging up, looking at his face. When we look at his face, he turns his face toward us. We get charged up. It fuels our mission. We reflect what we worship. If the mission is to fill the earth with God's image and presence, then worship fuels the mission because we reflect what we worship. I love the song that we sang last week and then at Blocks. Um, that lyric that says, I pledge my life to you. I pledge my life to you, I'm your temple. That's a very confrontational lyric. Like it's, it's kind of hard to sing that lyric out without checking your heart, without the Holy Spirit checking your heart. Have you really, is this, are you really, did you really pledge your life to me? This is an important question to wrestle with. Really, really important question to wrestle with. What have you pledged your life to? What do you worship? Because this affects the way that we image God. This affects what image we fill the earth with. This affects the mission. N.T. Wright explains how. He says, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. That's a problem. Because it's our destiny to be transformed progressively into the image of God. He says, when we worship that which is not God, we progressively stop reflecting the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around you. Those who worship money, we see this all the time. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These, lock in, this last sentence is so powerful. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging, damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. All of these things, idolatry, damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people who are worshiping the idols and of those whose lives that they touch. Idolatry. What is an idol? Tim Keller says um, an idol is a counterfeit God. Counterfeit God. Remember we talked about the counterfeit tree. An idol is a false tree of life. Something that you think might be able to offer you that God cannot offer you. It is anything more important to you than God. It is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. 
It's anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. How do we identify these idols? How do we recognize if we have any idols in our hearts? How can we tell if we're worshiping or that we've pledged our life to something besides God? Tim Keller again says a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life should hardly feel worth living. Something so essential, something so critical. If I don't have this, if this goes away, if I don't see this happen, then I go into a deep tunnel of darkness and depression. I don't want to get up. I don't want to get out of bed today. Let me give you some examples. Last night, one of my friends said, I kind of like it when you stayed in the general vicinity of idols. I didn't like it when you gave the examples. Uh, but she said, give the examples. We need the examples. If you worship power, something like this is going to be internally reverberating through your soul. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. If you worship approval, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by fill in the blank. Life only has meaning if I have the approval of my spouse, if I have the approval of my coach, if I have the approval uh, of my friends, of this person. If this person likes my post, I have a great day. If they don't, why didn't they see me? Why didn't they approve of what I put up on social media. If you worship control, this is the one the Lord's been dealing with me this year. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of this, the area of a church building, the area of the people that I pastor, the area of the staff that I lead. I want to have control over these things. And when I feel like I don't, uh, it's an idol. The Lord said it was an idol. If you, if you worship helping, life only has meaning. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and if they need me nobody needs me to take care of them, then I feel like I'm worthless. A lot of moms, I think, go through this as their, as their, parent, or as their kids leave the nest. What's my purpose? What's my identity? I don't have anybody that needs me anymore. If you worship work, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am highly productive and I'm getting a lot done. If you worship materialism, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth. If I have a, a, this number in my bank account, things are good. But if something happens and it goes down, I start to worry. I start to get anxiety. I start to stress. I, I lose sleep at night. Financial freedom, very nice possessions. If I have those things, I'm good. If you worship your family, life only has meaning. I only have worth if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. And here are two that, that I think have, a, have their hooks in a lot of people in this region. If you worship ideology. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my political or social cause is making progress and descending in influence or power. My person doesn't win. I'm sad and mad about it and going to let everybody around me know it affects my whole life. If you worship comfort, comfort. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience. I just want to be comfortable. If I'm not comfortable, then I'm not happy. What have you pledged your life to? This matters. This is a big deal. And you might think that having other idols before God's only hurting you. Like this is personal between you and God. But if you think it's only hurting you, you are deceived. Idolatry not only affects the sinner, but it affects the community. Because idols tarnish the image of God. And in the process, they dehumanize us. They dehumanize the, our evaluation of other people. They erode. They eat away at the community. Think about it. Customers instead of a person made in the divine image of God. 
I don't care if this product is good for you or bad for you. I just care that it brings me some money. You're, you, are, you are a customer. You are not the divine image of God. Sex, if, if the idol of sex is there, sex objects instead of a daughter of God, a sex object. You're not made in the image of divine God. You're just a sex object to me. Everything, we all have something at stake. What do you worship? N.T. Wright, again, he says, called to responsibility and authority within and over creation. Remember dominion? We've been given dominion. We've been given authority. He says, humans have turned their vocation upside down, giving worship and allegiance to forces and powers within creation itself instead of the creator. The name for this is idolatry, and idolatry is at the heart of sin. Sin doesn't just refer to doing the wrong things, but it refers to missing the mark, missing the target, missing the mission. The target for God's people, the mission is to love him with all of our heart, soul, our strength, our mind, to love our neighbor as ourselves, as we fill the earth with his glory and his presence. But when we have counterfeit gods before the one true God in our hearts, we miss the target. What we worship what we worship, anything other than God that we worship, whether it's power or popularity or people-pleasing or politics, when we worship those things, we begin sacrificing at their altar. I'll sacrifice at this altar of politics. I'll sacrifice at this altar of people-pleasing. I'll sacrifice at this altar. We begin obeying their commands. And in doing so, we decline the divine commission to reflect God's image. We, we, de we, we decline decline the divine commission to reflect God's image. Instead of looking more like him, we begin to look like workaholics, like sexaholics, like comfortholics, like selfaholics. We miss the mark. We sin, and we know that sin has consequences. We're aware. We know that sin has consequences. It leads to destruction. But people, a lot of times, I think they don't connect this consequence. This is a big one. When we worship and when we serve forces within the creation, the creation that we were supposed to be responsible for, we hand over our power to other forces. We hand over the authority, the God-given dominion and authority. We hand it to other forces who are all too happy to usurp our position. Like Pastor Josh talked about, oh, you don't want to occupy over here? I'll gladly occupy over here. We humans have thus, by abrogating or withdrawing from our own vocation, we handed our power and authority to non-divine and non-human forces, which have then run rampant, spoiling human lives, ravaging the beautiful creation, and doing their best to turn God's world into a hell. Listen, sex and pleasure and beauty and health, fitness, all these things, they're all ordinary parts of God's creation, good parts of God's creation. But when good things that God created become things that we worship, they become distorted and they turn into dangerous monsters. When we worship anything other than God, we hand over our authority over to it. We empower those things that were never supposed to rule and reign in the earth. Like we marvel at how politics has torn apart our country. But really, we shouldn't be shocked because people worship freely, cheerfully, willingly. They worship their political parties. And in turn, they give dominion over and authority over to a counterfeit God Amen. like Adam and Eve, like yeah. believing like Adam and Eve that this can give me something that God cannot. So I'm going to worship that. And it turns into a dangerous monster. When we're rightly or we are rightly horrified by sex trafficking. 
Like how could something so good like sex that God created turn into such a heartbreaking travesty it's because people made it an idol. We handed power over to something that was never supposed to have dominion and authority in this world. And those rulers of darkness are all too happy to jump in and take that dominion where we willingly forfeit it. Occupy until I come. Isaiah 44 is a very accurate depiction of idol worship. Starting in verse 9, I'm not going to put the whole thing up on the screens, but if you have your phone, go there, Isaiah 44, your Bibles, Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. It says, how foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they're all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God, an idol that cannot help him one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced along with all these craftsmen, mere humans, who claim they can make a god. They stand together, but they will stand in terror and shame. The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool, pounding and shaping it with all his might. He, his work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. And then skip down. It says, their eyes are closed. They cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why, it's, it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and I used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? And then listen to this, see this image in your head. The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. Can you see people just putting handfuls of ashes into their mouth, hoping that it will satisfy? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? This is why worship is the goal, it's the fuel of missions because people are feeding on ashes. People are feeding on ashes. They're trusting in something or someone that can't help them at all. Their eyes are closed and their minds are shut and they can't even bring themselves to ask, is this thing that I'm holding in my hand a lie? And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. We need to let our hearts break for this. This is God's inheritance. The ones that he endured all the sufferings of the cross to have. The one that he sent his son to save. They're trusting in something that can't help them at all. They are living a lie. They are east of Eden. And we live in a culture that's continually promising to, to fill the longing in our hearts that God put there for him that he wants to fulfill. And when this thing doesn't fill it, we just move on to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, never realizing that there's only one thing that will fill the void. And that's the Lord, that's God. Who will point the ash eaters to the only one who can fulfill their longings? Who will point the ash eaters to the only one who can fulfill their longings? who will point them to the one who longs for them, who dreams of them. They need an icon 
to help point them to the one that has loved them since before the foundation of the earth. And when we worship God, church, and when we choose to seek his face continually, we become those icons of his image and of his presence. We become a sanctuary, a place where earth meets with heaven, and our presence ushers in the presence of the almighty God. And when people brush up against us, when they double click into our lives, we get to point them to Jesus. We get to be icons in his graphically interfaced world. And you know what happens is people encounter him through us, they begin to see that the idol that they're holding in their hands is indeed a lie. But over here, there's Jesus. He is the way and he is the truth and he is the life and I'm going to pledge my life to him. The one who disarmed darkness at the cross. He disarmed darkness at the cross. Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, God made a public spectacle or a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He's disarmed the powers and the authorities. Don't rearm them through idol worship. You want to be an icon in God's graphically interfaced world, you gotta seek his face and you gotta seek his presence. Or as Paul said in Colossians 3, you have to set your mind on things above. You have to set your mind on things above. This means you need to be rejoicing and resting on, resting in Jesus. Set your mind on things above. Who's above? It's Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. We set our minds on Jesus. Jesus must become more beautiful to us, to our imagination. He must become more attractive to our heart than our idols. And we have to continually seek his face. We have to continually seek his presence because you can uproot your idol. But if you don't replace it with a, a love for Christ, it's just going to grow back. We have to occupy. Our mission is to fill the earth with God's presence and worship fuels our mission because we reflect what we worship. What do you worship? Who do you worship? If you would stand to your feet, I'm gonna invite the altar ministry team to come down and we're gonna go back into a worship song, but I also just wanna take a moment before we head out of here to Internally, this is something between you and the Lord right now, to confront some idols, to, some, to confront some idols tonight. I believe that you've got to name your idols if you want to break allegiance with them. If you want to pretend it's not there, it's just going to continue to show up and you're going to continue to bow down. You need to name your idol. You need to name it out loud, whether it's down here at the altar ministry, uh, altar ministry teams or to your spouse or maybe to your parents. Let's name some idols out loud today. And if you, you're still having trouble trying to identify what those mean or what that means or what that might be for you, what do your thoughts drift to when there's nothing else that's commanding your attention? What kind of things do you daydream about? Um, your religion is what you do with your solitude. What do you do when you're alone? What do you think about what you're, when you're alone? If you had a day all to yourself, what would you do? That might indicate what your idols are. What tree have you been eating at? Because you thought that it might be able to offer something to you that God could not offer to you. We need to name those idols. We need to confess that our hearts have been dependent on them, that we've lifted up our soul to an idol instead of to the Lord. We need to confess that before God. We need to confess that before a brother or sister. We need to repent. We need to turn away from the idols in our lives and saying, no more. I'm gonna go a different direction. I'm not gonna keep walking down the same street and falling in the same hole. I'm gonna go down a different street now. We need to repent. We need to rejoice. 
We need to take joy in the absolute certainty that Jesus has given us a brand new born again spirit that he is renewing in the image, his image, the image of its creator. We would, he withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. We need to rejoice in that. You will satisfy and meet every need that I've ever had, you and you alone. Rejoice in him. And then we need to replace our idols with a renewed passion for Jesus. We need to name it, confess it, repent, rejoice, and then say, Lord, replace this now with a hunger, with a love, with eyes for you. I only want eyes for you, King Jesus. So as we sing, come forward to the altar, maybe turn right there to your spouse. Maybe you kneel down at your seat, but, but I want you to respond in some way. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? This could be a very big moment of freedom for your life if you will obey and be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is doing. Father, I pray right now that you would draw every person who needs to come forward and be bold and confess that there, are, there have been things that we've lifted our souls up to. I pray that you would give us boldness. I pray that, uh, that, that, that you would help us to, to obey in this moment. Give us courage, Lord. We can come confidently, Lord, because of the blood of Jesus. Help us to know that you're not mad, but that you are a loving, good, good God, and you want us to break free from these idols so we can behold you and image you, Jesus. We want to fulfill our destiny to be transformed into your image. We don't want to look like the world. We want to look like you, Jesus. Would you show us? Would you open up our hearts? Would you open up our minds? Would you give us hearts that are grieved, Lord, for what grieves you, Lord? Give us boldness. We love you. Continue to speak to your people and draw every person that needs prayer to the altars today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. For more information on our church or for more resources to help you grow in your faith, go to newsongpeople.com or download our app by searching for New Song Church OKC in the App Store.